Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley & Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley & Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Ana Romes. Ana is a litigation associate in Foley's Miami office, and Ana has what is best described as a non-traditional path to the law. And she is the first guest on this show who actually has not one but two degrees in the theater arts. The conversation you're going to hear is Anna reflecting on growing up in a military family, going to college to get a degree in theater, and subsequently even getting a Master of Fine Arts in theater. But interestingly, Anna never worked in theater and instead was a community organizer in Central America before coming back to the U.S. and eventually going to law school. Anna's path is incredibly interesting, and I've said repeatedly, one of my goals for this show is to show there is no prototypical lawyer and no prototypical path, and Anna epitomizes this. She reflects on what it was that brought her to law school in her mid-30s. She discusses about her two judicial clerkships and what she learned at a firm prior to joining Foley and Lardner. She also reflects on Foley's culture and the importance of making sure that you take advantage of every opportunity that is presented to you. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Anna. Anna, welcome to the show. Let's just jump right in and have you give your professional introduction. Sure. My name is Anna Romas, and I am an associate at Foley and Lardner's Miami office. I've been with the firm about three years now. All right, let's start at the very beginning because we want to figure out how it is that you ended up an associate in Miami. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? I have no idea where I'm from. I grew up in the military. <laughs> I really dislike that question, actually, because I don't know where I'm from. Ooh. But my father was born in Miami, and he met my mother in Miami. So the only place in my entire life that I have repeatedly returned to is Miami. So Miami feels like home. And now you do have to elaborate a bit on where did you live and what was that like being in a military family? I was born in Sacramento, California, and then we moved to Georgia. We moved back to California, but to Merced, California, Hawaii, Germany, Virginia, Hawaii, Virginia, and then as an adult, Pennsylvania, D.C., Mexico, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Texas, a short stint in Seattle when I was out of work, and Miami. All right. I need even more color around. So does that mean you'd spend a year or so in a school or were you attending the local school for wherever you were? How did that work? That depended. My father was usually stationed for three years or less than three years in, in the places that we went to. There were some places that he was stationed. Like the first time we were in Virginia, he was there for six months. So that was when I was in seventh grade. I We started a, a public school in January, so in the middle of the year, and then left it by the end of the year to go to Hawaii. But he really did try to make the moves coincide with summers. 
so that we would be moving in between school years and not do that middle of the school year switch, which was really complicated. And then did you say what, what, like, what was it like growing up in the military? Yeah, kind of, because I'm also trying to get a sense also, and I didn't even ask this yet. This is my next question. If you had to describe yourself as a kid, so if we got like that snapshot of, and we will get to why you're a lawyer, but I'm trying to see, because I think often listeners, particularly for the law students, there's probably someone listening who had a similar upbringing or had similar sort of interests as a, as a kid. So you're moving quite a bit. Sure. But what was, if I found you in middle school, what were you into? Oh, <laughs> what were you doing? Oh, God, what a terrible time. I, from a very young age, was into performing. So dance and theater, mostly when I was younger, more dance. But as I got older, more theater. I was very not inclined athletically. I could hardly catch a ball, which turned out to be my eyesight. But that's a whole nother issue. Um, <laughs> I was According to my sister, uh, more outgoing and more social. My sister was very shy. She's a year older than me. And we were the closest of friends growing up, as you might imagine. She was the person. She was my person and is really still my person because we moved so much. So I don't remember a lot about those years. You know, middle school, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, I was in three schools. <laughs> I was in three different schools for sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. I was awkward. I am a shy, I really am an introvert, even though people think I'm an extrovert. So it was very painful. In the eighth grade, I went back to the school that I had attended in Hawaii previously. And I remember I, it was the first time ever I'd gone to school without my sister because she was in ninth grade and went to the high school. And I was not really the kind of child that wanted to be with my parents, but I made my mom walk with me to class and wait with me in line. We would form lines outside in the courtyard because I was terrified to go to school. Without your sister, without your big, your without big sister there. Sister, yeah. 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 And she says she's the shy one, but I did not know how to do anything without her. Wow. Well, I really appreciate you elaborating on that. And I'll fast forward a little bit because I imagine we have a little bit of ground to cover, but we'll see. So what was it like once you, I don't know, you're you're in high school or you're thinking about college. So just what, what happens next as we move forward through your sort of educational career into your professional career? Right. So high school, I was in two different high schools also. So there was a, a lot of disruption, social disruption through high school. But I was very, very involved with theater. It's the one thing that kept me emotionally stabilized was having a, a creative outlet. And then so acting, were you like singing, acting, dancing? Acting. No, I was acting. I'm not a very okay. good singer, <laughs> uh, but acting. So that, that was all of my focus and all of my energy went into theater in both high schools. And then when I was looking for college, I was looking for a theater program. I can identify with this a little bit. I have not talked about this much on the show, but in high school, I was a theater nerd, but on the tech side, ah, like yeah. the tech crew side. So I actually stage managed a number of plays and I was lucky that my high school had this really robust theater program that frankly was a lot better than many colleges will have. And so, yes, I, I was a card carrying member of the International Thespian <laughs> Society. Love it. <laughs> with, I think it was, I think by the time I left high school, it was over 2000 hours because you would sign oh, wow. in. Oh, wow. They would, they would track your hours. And yeah, this is like a whole other side. So I wasn't even as cool enough to be 
the acting. I was in the, I was like building sets and like. Oh no, that's super cool. <laughs> But I will say that whole group is friends. Like, I just remember like kind of everybody was friends because you all spent so much time together. Yes. Yes. In fact, I never, I never fit in at my second high school. It was very, very difficult for me to go to school there, but I am still in contact with the, some of the individuals from the theater program. Wow. That's amazing. And I think you, you mentioned, so then when looking at college, that was top of mind as well. So what was the thought process with college? It was, but we lived in Southern Virginia and my parents put this five-hour radius uh, around Virginia for as far as we could go so that they'd be able to to come, to drive and, and get us. And so I went to Gettysburg College, which is in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, approximately five hours from where my parents <laughs> lived. So it was like I was given an outer limit and that's where I went. Did that just happen to be that way? Or were you like, all right, this is as far as I can get? (laughs) Well, I will say, you know, I told my dad the other day that I've been teaching my twins, this is the line and you're crossing it. You are crossing this line. Like You need to stop. And he says, what? This coming from the individual that never understood the concept of a line? (laughs) You know? He's like, oh, this is funny to hear from you. (laughs) Yes, I was always pushing boundaries with my parents, and but um, I see that in my youngest right now. He's the one who you tell him the line, and then he'll like cross it in front of you, and then he'll jump back and look at you like, "I can't be in trouble now. I'm back. Like, why are you mad?" Right? Yeah. What's so, the big deal? Exactly. Yes. And I so, know- what was your what was your major in, in college? Was it in performance? Shocking theater. <laughs> was okay. This yeah. is awesome. Yeah, I definitely majored in theater arts. I tried to do a minor in women's studies, but I had a, a tip with the women's studies department about something I thought was unfair, and uh, so I was a theater arts major. Yeah, you were the first theater arts major who's been on the podcast. This is going to be, I think, around episode forty-two, and you are the first well, new territory I have here. An undergraduate and a graduate degree in theater. So. <laughs> really? Okay. So tell. So yeah, tell me more. You yeah. focus on that because yeah. presumably the thought there was like the thought was not that you were going to be sitting in the Miami office of a large law firm. I never ever. wanted to be an attorney. Right. Never. That wasn't the plan. Never. It was never. Well, I ne- I've never been really good at having a plan necessarily. I have very much gone where my impulses have led me. Even law school was an impulse and here we are. So it was never part of the plan. Although my parents will say that they always thought I should study law, I think because I argue. But yeah, no. So I graduated, I graduated with the theater arts degree, but never worked in theater after that I ended up with a with my Central America focus so I I ended up working in community development in Central America wow and then also grad school is also going to happen after I had worked in Central America for quite some time and it it's a little strange because right before I took a full-time job in Nicaragua which was I think in 1996 I went to a conference, a a pedagogy and theater of the oppressed conference that was held jointly that year. And I met a professor, Sharon Grady, who did amazing work in theater around development and community issues. And I kept her card because, you know, the I, this was like, I didn't have an email address or really, yeah, yeah, I did not have a computer. So I had this card 
And I went and I worked in Central America. And uh, towards the end of 1999, when I was uh, leaving, I pulled out her card and I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go study with this woman. She was amazing. I kept her card all these years. I am going to study with her. And so I applied to the University of Texas at Austin MFA program where she was a professor. And I said, I want to work with you. I'm not applying anywhere else. And I went. (laughs) Wow. And I'm going to jump around just a bit because I don't know that I gave Nicaragua its just amount of time. But just to, and also I'm flying blind here. So for the listeners, we had a little bit of a tech issue just getting set up. And usually what I do is I have like the person's bio and their LinkedIn and I can kind of walk through it and I have nothing. I have nothing. So this is all a complete surprise to me, <laughs> but right. I just want to make sure I'm following. So, you know, you go, you finish college with, you know, that focus, the degree and in, in theater, like you said, you got opportunities in Central America. And then from there, you went on to do your master's in fine arts with this the person who gave you the card. But tell me just a little bit more about the work you were doing when you were in Central America. I had several different jobs. The job from 96 to 99 was the in-country director for Project Gettysburg León. So the town of Gettysburg has a sister city with León, Nicaragua. And during that period of time, you know, the early 90s, Nicaragua was coming out of a civil war. It was coming out from under a U.S. blockade against the country. And a lot of sister cities had formed between European cities and U.S. cities and communities that were in solidarity with the people of El Salvador. So a direct line of uh, U.S. assistance to different communities bypassing the government's um, blockade on aid and commerce. And so Gettysburg was one of those cities through Carl Matson, who's an amazing human being, had set up this program. And I went to be the in-country director. And we did small level community development projects with communities in the rural areas surrounding uh, the town of Leon. Many of our projects were small microfinance to purchase and store beans or to purchase and raise a small livestock, pigs and chickens. We also handled for many, many years a relationship with midwives in in a rural area called Santa Rosa del Peñón. And yeah, so basically all kinds of small scale development. And then later on, as I was studying to get my master's degree, I worked in rural schools teaching subject matter content through drama-based techniques. Wow. (laughs) After And I went back to the Comarcas of Santa Rosa del Peñón to do that work. And then I ran a youth program training, like a train the trainers program to train peer health educators in sexual and reproductive health. You have said so many things that I think we could spend, we could spend hours exploring these. And it's taking everything in me to not ask you about 18 follow-ups, but I'm not going to. Okay. Because we only have a certain amount of time on the show, but I really appreciate you elaborating on that. And all of those sound like tremendous experiences. But now, yeah, take us back. We'll kind of get, because we'll never make it to law school is what will happen. We'll never right. get to your, right. I'll leave, I'll leave people hanging. We'll stop somewhere in Central America and I'll be like, and you know, just email Anna if you want to know. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, so keep, let's keep going. You do all that, but then you're back, I think you said the University of Texas at Austin, working with the, the I'm not, I shouldn't call her the business card person, but I've forgotten her name. But yeah, so, so pick, up, pick up the thread. Tell me what happens next. Well, yeah, because the University of Texas is kind of in between two 
two periods of time in Central America, right? So I I went to the University of Texas between 2000 and 2003, and then went back to Central America with with that degree. So it was kind of sandwiched between. Yeah. And you mentioned with the the teaching with drama-based techniques. So you got the degree, you're able to take that back. Right. So my master's thesis was on using these, the, the program at UT Austin is a drama and theater for youth and communities. And it's focused on the process of theater. So how you can create and sustain dialogue, sometimes difficult or contentious dialogue through creative uh, techniques and facilitation. We should talk more later, by the way, because in this world of you know difficult conversations within the DNI context, something tells me you have some experience or perhaps have done even research or worked it. So that's a that's an aside. We'll talk about that later. We talk, yeah. yeah. So, so that you know, I I took those techniques from that program to do my practicum for my thesis. You know, in order to graduate, you need a thesis, and mine was taking drama montaña adentro. So I was using drama-based techniques for community development in Nicaragua and montaña adentro because I lived in Santa Rosa del Peñón but had to walk up a mountain about an hour to where my school was located. Yeah, so the, the, the university program is sandwiched between uh, the Central America component of my life. And, and at this point, I see no glimmers of law school. I'm not, I don't know how no. it comes up. Where does this, so keep walking us forward. What happens well, next? <laughs> I'm going to throw you another curveball. I ended up having some uh, different, the the program that I worked for, the, the youth program towards the end of my time in Nicaragua, and I worked for them in El Salvador and in Nicaragua. I had some differences of opinion with quantity versus quality. I was focused on the quality of training the young people. The funders were focused on the quantity of young people reached. It became to be a too too much, and I did not like the direction of the program. So I left and I came back to the U.S. And where, where do you go when you're in your mid-30s and you've been working jobs that paid about $500 a month uh, for the better part of your 20s and 30s? You have no money, some debt. And I, I came to live with my aunt in Miami because that's what you do. <laughs> you, you go back to family. Mm-hmm. You find family and you, yes. I didn't want to go back to Virginia where my parents still live. And so I moved in with my aunt and I um, tried to figure out what to do. Not surprisingly, it was hard for me to find work in theater because all of my experiences in the previous 10 years had been in community development. And it was hard for me to find work in community development because all of my education was in theater. Mm, And so I had a real, a real, uh, you know, disconnect between what I had been doing professionally and what I had studied academically. So while I was waiting that out, I got a job as a victim advocate at the Miami Police Department Homicide Unit. Okay, you did just throw me for a loop. Didn't see that coming at all. All right. I know. Right. So I had uh, worked with domestic violence shelters all, you know, as a volunteer and as a job all throughout college to pay for uh, my graduate studies. I worked at a domestic violence shelter and a a sexual assault responder to hospitals. So I, it was a fit for me. Um, It was a part-time job. So I thought it would allow me to find this, you know, the, the unicorn job that combined my theater and community development work. Um, And it was during that period of time that I decided that in order to progress on some kind of professional path, I needed to go back to school. And so then the question became, well, what, you know, what am I going to go study? And it was actually my partner at the time, who's my wife now, who said, well, I think you should study law. 
I think that you would make a really good attorney. And I was like, attorney, <laughs> you know, that I, it just had, it really had never crossed my mind and would not have crossed my mind if she hadn't suggested it. But I didn't know what that mean. There's no, there's no attorneys in my family. I did not know that where you went to school could affect the job you got. I didn't know anything about taking the LSAT. I just was, what I ended up doing, and really it was literally this way, I'm not making this up, saying, okay, well, let me study the next 30 days or whatever to take the LSATs. And if I get a decent enough score, I'll apply. But I didn't even think about where I would apply to. I just thought, oh, let me wait and see what the score is. And then I got the score. And I was like, it was decent. I don't even remember what it was, but it was decent. And I was like, well, I don't know if we're going to move right now. So let me just apply to the University of Miami. And, you know, if I get in, maybe I'll go. And I applied and I got in. And then I thought, well, this is a little expensive. If I get financial aid, I'll go. Yeah, then I'll really go. Yeah. And so then I got financial aid and I thought, well, I guess, guess I should I'm, go. <laughs> I guess I'm going. I didn't apply anywhere else. I didn't investigate what it meant to be an attorney. I did not do my basic due diligence before going to law school. I had no idea what to expect. I knew nothing. I didn't even know all of the jokes about how law school was or whatever that movie is that we're all supposed to have seen that I've never seen about the Socratic method. I think it's called The Paper Chase. I could be wrong. There's one, yeah. There's a book that's maybe called 1L and the movie's called The Paper Chase. Someone will tell me if I'm wrong, but I think that's right. Never seen it. I just remember people joking about it and thinking, what are they even talking about? What is this thing? I had never been in a, really in an academic program that focused on testing and grades. I was shocked about this one test a semester thing. I thought that is the most absurd way to test someone's growth and knowledge that's totally against everything that I believed and learned in, in theater and in theater pedagogy. So it was a real shock to me. I had no idea. This is amazing. So I'm just imagining if we were having this conversation in a different context, like if we were you know, able to be in person at a coffee shop somewhere, this is the, and I'm keeping my composure because I'm a podcast host right now. Of course, <laughs> this is yes. the point where I would be like, oh my gosh, are you serious? This is amazing. I would have all these different things. But what I, what I love though, is this is also how life works for, I'd say most people. And I, and I think after a number of years in a law firm and, you know, focusing heavily on, you know, law students and how they get to, and a lot of the law students that we'll, we'll meet, you know, they've maybe come from backgrounds where they do have lawyers in the family or they went down a rabbit hole and they use Reddit threads to learn all the things they could possibly learn. But I think the reality is that that then when you were going to law school, but similarly, even right now, for a lot of people, it's, I think I want to go to law school. If it works out, I'll go. There's a law school over there, like yeah. down the street I'm, yeah. and I'm doing my best. Like what, right. what else is there to this? Yeah. Well, yeah, a so lot, if, I had, if like, I had looked exactly. into it, there was True. Well, what was that? So what was that experience like? If you could just like, if you could just reflect for a minute or two on, so you do start law school and you're also going, you know, later in your career than, than most people would go. So you have a, I mean, you have a number of factors um, that you're, you know, bringing in. So what was, what was the experience like? It was a bit odd. I, I remember in the first week of school, I remember a another 1L asking me what I did with my time off. And I, it, it took a lot for me not to have a really sarcastic, unfriendly response to that. 
I did not know at the time that many people go straight from undergraduate to law school. I had no idea that was a foreign concept to me. So I was very, well, you know, I've never been the popular the, the popular person, not in high school, not in college, not in graduates. I just have never been the most popular kid on the block. So there was a real disconnect between me and most of my colleagues at the time. And it was very hard to have a social existence in law school. I mean, that said, I made some wonderful friends that I continue to be friends with to this day that I've seen grow into amazing professionals. And I'm really, really blessed to know them. But socially, law school to me was it was not a, Very a place for me to have a yes. social life. Well, it's it's funny. I, as you said that, I was like, yeah, you probably had someone the equivalent of me coming up and asking <laughs> you that as I'm someone who did go straight through. Um, and another guest we've had on the show is Larry Perlman, who's also in your office. Oh, and he's somebody right. who went to law school, like being a lawyer is a, a second career for him. And so if listeners want to check that out, I can't remember his episode number, but, you know, look back and listen to him, Larry, Larry Perlman. But he did talk about how, you know, you're coming in with other obligations. That's and right. fortunately, and he had kids when he was in law school, at least I, yes. I did not have children yes. when I was but in law But you have this, this life and whether or not it be, you know, familial obligations, part-time job or whatever, you're not necessarily coming straight out of college where you're like, this is just like college. I'm going to, this is all I'm going to do. My only friends are going to go here. And there's just, I think it's just a different perspective, but I also think the perspective can be beneficial in a lot of ways as well. But yeah, I could see the social dynamics definitely being affected. How did you find it academically? Because it sounds like a whole different side to your brain you're using at that point. I might yeah. be wrong, but. <laughs> well, no, it was. And you know, I had been working in, in victim advocacy for three years and, and without any formal training, but to be a victim advocate, it's an incredibly emotional job and it wears you down emotionally. I can still get completely broken up about very specific death notifications. I remember them. I have a very bad memory, but I remember those very clearly, how I felt, what it was like. It And it really, yeah, I mean, in Miami, there was a, a year, I think, when we were having at least one homicide a week. And so it it, it wears you down. And on, on top of the 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 family members of, of homicide victims, we worked with domestic violence victims. So there was, there was just a lot, a lot of victims, a lot of pain, a lot of heart that goes into empathizing, but not being drawn into their hole of crisis, because you can't do your job if you're falling into that hole. So it's both incredibly emotional and incredibly cold at the same time. And I remember thinking, all I want to do is use my brain. Like that, my heart has been stretched as far as it can be stretched in this job. I am worn out. I want to use my brain. And I thought, oh, this is perfect. I'm going to use my brain. And I think there's a, a hard time finding a balance now because several years into this, you're like, oh, I'm using my brain all the time. What about my heart? You are speaking my language because I find that lawyers, lawyers are very cerebral and they tend to be people who, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm talking for myself here in a lot of ways, they tend to be people who are naturally very in their heads and likely could stand to do some work with that more heart-led, heart-open. And so I love that you described it that way, because I, I truly believe that in order to be a balanced human, it actually is a balance between the two. But often, we're, we're wired one way or the other, and we'll swing. And lawyers tend to swing really far into the cerebral. So I hear you when you say that. Yeah, and, and I can do it. I mean, I am, I can see things objectively. I really can. And, and I think it makes me a better attorney. But, but I do not forget that part of, you know, what people, 
people do things for very emotional reasons. There's, you know, our clients, even if they're large companies are run by individuals and those individuals make decisions sometimes, not coldly, but on impulses and what their heart says. And you have to understand that. Yes. Well, and the thing is, what can happen is if you're very disconnected between the two, the heart is involved, emotions are involved, but you've learned to wrap them in this layer of like of reason and rationale, and you're unable to see what's actually occurring. Is your reasoning's happening after the fact? Well, you you have to do that too because in order to tell your story to the judge, yes, doesn't want to hear about all that stuff, and you have to package it in a way that is both objectively cold and reasoned, but persuasive enough. And the heart is where the persuasion comes in, I think. But you have to do both. It's a weird balance. I could not agree more. And this is another topic we could talk for a very long time about. But I will take you back to law school and ask you, in that experience, did you have a sense of what you wanted to do as a lawyer? And how how does that happen? Like, how do you figure out what you even want your practice area to be. And and of course, when does Foley come on the scene? So just basically tell me what happens next. Yeah, I definitely did not ever want to work in private law. That's that's for sure. You know, I I graduated from law school and I passed, I found out I passed the bar on September 19th, 2012. And I turned 40 a couple days later. Right. So I had that entire time, I was going to say never, but except for one stint selling soap at the body shop in DC, I had never worked for a private company. I'd only worked in nonprofit or government entities. So I, I believe, I can't really tap back into what exactly I was thinking because I was very much going with the flow as I entered law school, but I can only imagine that all I ever wanted to do was be a nonprofit or government attorney. My All of my summer job experiences in law school were nonprofit and government positions. So I worked with a domestic violence legal aid program. I worked with the National Women's Law Center. I worked at the Department of Justice. I was in immigration clinic. I was not going to work for a private law firm. It was not on my horizon. So connect the dots for me. You graduate from law school. You take the bar. Yeah. Dot, dot. Yes. What happened? I don't remember when I got my job offer in my third year. I was not one of these people that sat cushly back. I applied to a lot of jobs and I was applying mostly to federal government work. I really wanted to work for the federal government. You know, my dad was a career Air Force officer. To me, a good career was a career with the federal government. But I wasn't really a very attractive candidate, right? So I come from University of Miami. It's not like this amazing law school. I'm already in my 40s. I wasn't an attractive candidate, I don't think. You're, and you're I, viewed as an alternative type of candidate by the industry. Let's put it, we'll, we'll call it that, which is has a, a lot of things baked in that, you know, I certainly am not a fan of, but I do hear you when you say that. Right. And so I, I ended up, my first job out of law school was a clerk for an appellate judge. in in the fourth district court of appeal in Florida. And I didn't know it at the time, but that was the best thing that ever could have happened to me ever. And that's a big deal. You said it was the fourth. What was the court again? The fourth district court of appeal. So, and it's, you know, the fourth district has a really good reputation. Also didn't know that when I applied, my judge had a very good reputation, has a very good reputation. I was so fortunate for that experience. It taught me more about the practice of law in that year 
than all of law school ever had and way more than a private first-year associate could ever have learned. So it really was a gift to me that that happened, that the judge took a chance on me. It was the biggest gift to me. Well, and I think you're also epitomizing why it's great to clerk. So, you know, I don't practice anymore, but when I did, I was a litigator and I never clerked. And I definitely saw the benefit, the peers of mine that did clerk, there was, there was a confidence that I felt that they had because they under, like they saw firsthand <laughs> how this was working. And just for right. me, it, pro- it probably took me three or four years to realize, oh, I can call a clerk and ask them because sometimes you're dealing with complicated things. And, and for somebody who's straight out of law school, who this is all kind of theoretical for, Right. I did not have that perspective. Well, and, and an appellate clerkship, because you know, I've since learned that here, if you become a, an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District, they place you first, like as they cycle you through, they place you first in the appellate unit. And it makes the most sense because, you know, obviously, as an appellate clerk, your first ta- task is to review the record. And what a hot mess. I mean, what a hot mess. And you can learn a lot about how to litigate at the trial level from how disastrous the You just see me is. nodding so much because the the building a record, and back to what I said before, in the absence of having, when you have that perspective, it becomes so much more tangible where for someone who hasn't, it's sort of abstract. You know, the partner you're working with will be like, oh no, it's important we do X thing because it preserves Y for the record. And you're kind of like, okay, because <laughs> mm-hmm. you don't you don't appreciate yeah. that in a couple years, an appellate court judge may, you know, it your case is not as good because so yeah, I'll stop kind of. Right. And because all you have to go on is that. And if it's a hot mess, which it is a lot of times, it's re- it's really difficult to sift through and, and determine what went on. And then I see, so I did pull you up on LinkedIn because this is oh, the former you- recruiter of me. I feel like I'm flying blind without it. So you were there for a year and then you did have the opportunity to go to a firm. So how did that come this is before Foley, but so what, how did that come to be? Right. So I, the, the clerkship with the 4th District Court of Appeals that's in West Palm Beach, which is about two hours north of Miami. And I was, had no plans to stay in West Palm Beach, so I needed to get back to Miami. I applied for federal clerkships like you would not believe. I thought what I really need is to work for a federal judge now. And I got a lot of interviews, but did, you know, like always a bridesmaid, never a bride. That was me, like a lot of interviews, a lot of them, and no job. And so it got to the point where, uh, you know, my clerkship was ending in a couple of weeks and I did not have a job. And, you know, obviously you don't make enough as a state clerk to have any, anything Cushion. to hold you over. Yeah, like, oh, it'll be fine. I don't need to work for a couple of years. It's fine. No, it's not no, fine. No, there was none of that. So I really needed a job. And there was a, a state law firm, you know, Florida law firm, very well respected that needed contract attorneys. And so I took that job. I was a contract attorney at a private firm. It's my first private firm job ever. I had gone on private firm interviews, but my nonprofit and government background, I think worked against me. I, I, that and my age and all the other reasons that, you know, you might think why I wasn't able to get hired when I had a similar record to, to someone else from my same law school. So I, that's what I did. I was a contract attorney at this firm and it was, it was a good firm, but not good work. Mm. Yep. The, the work was really not stimulating to me. And I knew 
I knew I was not going to be there for a long time. <laughs> but but you know, I made I made the best of it while I could, and I, yeah. and I think you know I learned a lot there, obviously because I'd never been in a private firm, so I learned a lot about how private firms work and what you need to to do to get recognized. I was able to position myself as an appellate person, so I got put on appellate cases, got put on. You know, I argued and prepared the summary judgment motions and, and was in court all the time, all the time, and um, and learned a lot of, of good basic skills um, from, from that firm. And then my ticket out, what I decided is I was going to get, I was going to get that federal clerkship. I was going to get a federal clerkship no matter like what. This is going to happen. And so I just applied and applied and applied and applied. And so I got one. And then I left when I got. Yeah. And I see you're at the Southern District of Florida. For, That's right. Yeah. So going back to something you said about for the experiences that you had, just doing everything you could to learn from them. And as somebody who talks to a lot of law students, like for me, you have to just learn. And so I, I don't want to gloss past that because I think that was actually really critical advice that you gave. Yes, we all would love to land the dream job straight out of law school. But the bottom line is whatever opportunity you get, there's a ton that you can learn. And even if you know this is not your forever job, mine it for everything. And I just, I feel like that's something you've said, but I really wanted to pull that out because it's so it's so important and I think it can get lost. And frankly, I think you benefited from the perspective you brought of knowing, okay, at least I can learn here. And, and candidly, I think when, you know, for me graduating from law school at like 24, 25, I don't know if I had that same perspective. Yeah. And, you know, take advantage of, of everything you do, even if you think the work is like, if you have bigger plans for yourself, or like we used to say, there are no small roles, only small actors, whatever, you know, whatever plate you have, make the most out of it. And also I had going for me that I looked a lot older than the average young attorney. And I re- I'll never forget going to a hearing where we were going to, you know, these were in county court, not even in circuit court, county court, asking the judge to certify a question to the appellate court as a question of public importance. And because I had clerked, the partner brought me to that hearing. And it was that hearing that catapulted me into arguing all the summary judgment motions because the work that I did to prepare for that hearing, the partner didn't know anything about the research I had done or the what, you know, how we were going to talk about it. He billed me as an appellate expert to the judge, which cracked me up, but I kept a, a poker face, <laughs> you know, and the way that I was able to talk to the judge in that hearing is the very thing that got me all of the opportunities after mm-hmm. that. So well, that, that poker face is important. <laughs> I um, and as you said, so you, you learned through those experiences, you get the federal clerkship, and I'm sure that after that, that's when Foley comes on the scene. And I would love if you could, because we haven't talked a word about your current practice. <laughs> so tell me about that. Of what is your practice? What are your days like? Right. So I mean, obviously, I'm a litigator. I think we've picked that much up. And really, I think my strength in litigation is procedure. Obviously, from from the appellate and the the federal clerkship, there's a lot about procedure that I know and how to get things done and how to position, you know, your arguments. And then writing. I both hate and love writing. I think I do it well and oral advocacy, but you really don't get that, that many, you don't get so many opportunities in oral advocacy these days, but those, those are my strong points. So in terms of substance, I'm all over the map. 
but the common thread is complicated writing and a procedure. Yeah. And it sounds to me like your experiences prior to joining fully, they're, they're invaluable. I mean, you're just able to, you know, what's going on. <laughs> That's right. the best way that I could describe it. <laughs> the inside view. So a couple of other things that I have to touch on before we finish our time together, because we were talking about this before we recorded was you also have twins at home. We're recording this during COVID-19. It's March, 2021. So we are both dealing with all kinds of things in our houses while we record this. But just to just to lay it all out there, and I hate defining someone like this because we are all you know very multidimensional people. But as you've said, you know you started your legal career after forty. You have twins at home. And you've mentioned your wife. You're also an active member of the firm's LGBTQ affinity group. And there's so many things. And from obviously a director of DNI perspective, I think everything's amazing. <laughs> but I would love if you if there's anything related to that, either you know having children while being an associate or navigating the firm, you know, as an LGBTQ attorney, I'm not even quite sure, but I feel like I'd be remiss to not allow you to reflect on, you know, to the extent any of that has affected your experience or or maybe not. I'm not sure. Well, you know, I will say that when I um, was doing my job search after the clerkship, I ended up with two offers at the same time, both fabulous firms. One was Foley, one was another firm. And so really the decision came down to a Sunday call. Leslie doesn't remember this, but it actually did happen because I definitely remember taking this call on my front porch. And Leslie's your office managing partner. That's Leslie right. Smith. Yes. That's right. Okay. I posed to, to both of the individuals, the partners I was discussing uh, the position with at both firms, what the firm's family friendly approach to associates was like, where does a family fit into this? Where do I fit into this job? And is there going to be an understanding that I am an attorney, but I have a family first? And, you know, Leslie had the winning answer (laughs) about, you know, that, that, and I think that she did not misrepresent Foley is an incredibly family friendly place. I have felt welcome at Foley from the beginning. And, and I, I think that Leslie's answer to my concerns about how I, you know, was there going to be flexibility to work from home? I mean, what a joke, right? Because now. Yeah, because at this point, how old were your twins? And it was 2017. So they were two years old. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right and, in the thick of yeah. Not that your audience needs to know this, but I did breastfeed them until they were about two and a half. And so, you know, I would come home every night. Uh, to put them to to breastfeed and put them to bed. And that was like Mm non-negotiable. So it was very important to me. And then being able to work from home, there are going to be days there with with kids. You don't know what's going to happen. And I needed that flexibility. And in the other firm that I had gotten the offer from, there was a, a much less flexible response about the working from home, which just seems hilarious given the past year. But, you know, really does. There are firms that really, really disapprove of working from home and discourage working from home. And that was never my case with Foley. There was never pushback, you know, it's get your work done. And, and I have been able to to be there for my children, you know, at nighttime or put them to bed or be a presence in their life. Well, and I'm smiling also because, so I joined Foley December, 2019, you know, pandemic hits essentially three months after, but I have had the opportunity to visit the Miami office. 
And I've worked a lot with people in the Miami office. And whereas Foley, I think we do have a firm-wide culture. Absolutely. But you will also find within large firms, there is an office-by-office culture depending on the city you're in, the size of the office. And I really do view the Miami office as having a family dynamic and maybe partly because of the size. But I just love that you reflected that story because I've heard, you know, similar comments from other people. You know, I've talked to Leslie Smith plenty. Uh, Laura Ganoza is another person I talk to very often out of Miami. And so it's just really kind of warms my heart, yet confirms what I've already started, you know, sort of felt out myself about that particular office. Well, I, I also think there is an office by office culture, and I, and I haven't had a chance to visit as many offices as, as you have, but I have visited other offices and each one has their own culture. But I think there's also something that maybe being an older lateral allowed me is the negotiation of your time. Because I, I think a lot of first year attorneys think, you know, anything goes, like a request at any hour goes, that you always have to be a hundred percent responsive within a first, you know, the first few seconds. And there were individuals at Foley that told me I should not be working from home when I was, that that was not well viewed, but you negotiate it with each person you work with. Like, look, these, if you call me at six 30, I'm most likely going to be bathing my children. And I most likely will not answer or respond to an email unless it's a true emergency, true emergency, which True emergencies are few and far between or should be, really. Yes, I agree. Well, and the ex- I think the experience, the perspective, to have the confidence in that. But what you said is absolutely right. We all have to figure out what our boundaries are. And something I frequently tell very junior attorneys or law students is, yeah, I mean, it's a big deal to be in a large law firm. You're being paid a whole lot of money and a lot of you don't even know what you're doing. But the goal, at least for me, was to be responsive versus available. There's actually those those are two different things. It's one thing to acknowledge, and not to say I have to acknowledge it within 30 seconds of getting it, but it's one thing to acknowledge that you saw an email and then to say I can get to this at X time or, you know, to kind of let people know once you have a working rapport, you know, kind of when you're available. But it's another thing to drop what you're doing on a Saturday morning because a partner happened to be cleaning out their inbox and send something to you. And they're not really thinking it. They're just like, I want you to know this. And then, but because you're not used to practicing, you'll read that email in the grocery store and leave leave what you are about to buy and go run to your car <laughs> where 90% of the time, once again, using your judgment, acknowledging that you saw that and saying, I can get to it at X, you know, let me know if that was, that's, that's problematic would more than suffice. But I think for a while, many people are in the drop the bread in the bread aisle right. and run home. Yeah. And, and you know, it's very possible that I would be that kind of person without kids, but I do think the twins changed the, the calculus a, a bit for me or for, for any working mom. I had both of my kids while I was still practicing. And I think what happens for everyone is you get to the point where you're like, oh, wait, this working thing's kind of a long time. You know, my original plan was get a job, dot, 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 retire. (laughs) And if if I'm going to be doing whatever I'm doing for the next, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, I have to figure out how this can work in a way that is sustainable. And figuring out your non-negotiables. For some people, it's, I, you know, I eat dinner at 6.30 every night with my family. You know, I've worked with senior partners and, you know, they're seniors, so they can kind of, you know, they have more leeway, but it's, I'm on the 5.23 train every evening. You might not catch me for about an hour. And that's different. That looks different for everyone. But I think that's such an important point that you've raised. You know, and as our time is winding down, I have two more questions I want to ask you. And I, 
Also, I feel like you've said so many interesting things that I'm forgetting something. <laughs> so I'm, I'm pausing. But I'm probably there, forgetting it too, don't worry. <laughs> right. But is there anything, one, that you've wanted to touch on that you haven't had the opportunity to touch on? And then two, what is your advice to somebody contemplating a legal career? I don't think there's anything that, that I specifically wanted to touch on that you ha- you haven't brought up. And then my advice, you know, I, have a, I definitely would advise sorry, against going straight to law school from undergraduate. I think that there is a lot to be learned in terms of life sense and business sense from doing something between law school or between undergraduate and law school. And I also think that I think if I had to do it again, I might have done a bit more research about what it was like to be an attorney. I might have done it. Maybe I wouldn't have, but I I think it's a good idea to do it. I don't think it's a good idea to go into it as blind as as I went into it. I mean, it's worked out okay. I'm not not saying that I blew up the, you know, <laughs> blew it all up, but but I should have. I should have done. I think that's great advice. And usually I try to refrain from from commenting on the the final advice someone gives, but what you said about taking time between law school and, you know, whatever else, I, I actually think in a lot of ways for someone who goes straight through what you're doing is you're growing up while you're navigating your professional career. And that's that's fine. But there's, there is a lot to be learned from just whether it be just a handful of years doing something else. And I say that as somebody who, you know, didn't do that. But I look back and I was like, I was being raised <laughs> by my law firm. So for sure, yes. for sure. Yeah. I mean, now that I understand a bit more about private law firm culture and never having been a true first year associate, I see first year associates and, and think most of the growing is not legal. Yes. That is a profound statement that you just made. That is a fantastic note to end on. You know, with that, I will just thank you so much for being on the show, Anna. And if a listener, you know, has questions and wants to reach out to you, is it okay if they find you on Foley's website and send you an email? Absolutely. I would love that. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Anna. I am delighted to update her episode to share that as of February 2022, Anna was promoted to senior counsel at Foley. Congratulations, Anna. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. 